Thank you, music team. It's just so sweet to hear you guys sing to the Lord, and I couldn't help but think about um, Daniel on Sunday mornings. That's such a, such a great song. I might have to steal that one from the Boundless Music team and incorporate that on Sundays as a theme song for the book of Daniel. That would be very, very good. Um, great themes in that song. Well, it is good to be back and good to be um, back in the book of Ephesians tonight and in our marriage study in particular. The last time we were together, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, right? I lose track of time pretty fast. Um, but the last time we were together, we zeroed in on Paul's instructions to the wives and the would-be wives, in our case, your case. Um, we explored this incredible command to the wives to submit to their husbands. Uh, it's a tall order, but it's, it's full of Christ's glory like we saw last week. And, or I guess two weeks ago. Because last week, we were supposed to cover uh, what Paul had to say to the husbands. Or in this case, husbands-to-be. Um, men who were aspiring to that. And it's an equally tall and equally glorious order for you guys. But with the ice cancellation, you had an extra week to kind of anticipate what we were going to talk about. So, um, I've had a few of you come up and say that you hated that you had to wait an extra week. And uh, I laughed to myself because it was, it was hard to tell if you were like excited about that or afraid. Um, probably because I yelled at you a couple weeks ago. You're all kind of scared about this. Like, oh no, what's he going to do? Is he going to unleash on us again? And it was, it's similar to, um, you know, if we're having people over or something and my son's being real rowdy. And I, you know, I, I'm not just going to announce that I'm going to discipline him, but I'll, I'll scoop him up and I'll start walking back to the back bedroom where the discipline happens. And uh, he'll, he'll look at me kind of with this puzzled look and he'll say, Daddy, how are we going back there, Dad? What, what, what are we going to do back there, Dad? And I just, you know, I just stay quiet, walk back, so part of the suspense. That was this last week for you guys, right? You're like, what are we going to do? Pastor Clay, what, what, what are you going to say to us? So, <laughs> you're not in trouble, so breathe easy. Uh, no, these are sweet commands. They're convicting to be sure, um, but they're incredibly encouraging, I think, as we're going to see. And if you do end up getting spanked, just know that um, it's, it's the good discipline of the Lord flowing out of his love for you. So, with that compelling introduction, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5.25. And as you're, as you're turning there, you remember that our theme in this section, Paul's theme really, has to do with the reversal of the curse in marriage. Do you guys remember that? The reversal of the curse in marriage, or redeeming the curse, I think is how I put it on the screen. And Paul's not giving us, in this section on husbands and wives, he's not giving us a comprehensive view of like the role of husband and wives here. Um, he's only telling the wives one thing, one instruction, really, and it's to bring their, bring their lives underneath the authority of their husbands, to submit. And he's only going to tell the husbands one thing, which is to love their wives. Okay? To love their wives. And I think he's zeroing in on these two issues because these are precisely the issues that originate at the fall, the perversions that happen in the role of marriage at the fall. Um, 
in Genesis 3, the original beautiful and complementary relationship that God designed was perverted by sin. And every married couple says we understand that, um, and it doesn't take long to, to see that, uh, maybe in your own family relationships. So in other words, the wives are not going to naturally submit anymore. They're not going to follow the, the, their husbands um, they're going to have a desire for their husbands, according to Genesis 3, meaning they're going to desire to control their husbands. But their husbands are going to rule over them. They're going to domineer in a heavy-handed authority over them. So wives are not going to submit. Husbands are not going to love by default anymore. And that's a perversion of God's intent for marriage, as we've seen. But now, in Christ, redemption is just flowing out. And it's, it's flowing out to each one of us individually, and it permeates all the way to our individual homes, um, our individual relationships within the home. I mean, to even the most mundane, if you want to think about that, the slave-master relationship. It, it's just invading um, all of our relationships. And it's, it's really flowing out of this empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And now we have the ability to reverse the curse in dependence upon the Spirit, and to live in marriage as God has originally intended for us to live. And tonight we're going to see uh, exactly how husbands and, and those who are aspiring to be husbands are instructed to live. Now, ladies, don't, like, disconnect, okay? The guys didn't disconnect for yours, so you don't disconnect for this one. I think it's going to be very helpful for you for a few reasons, all right? Knowing what Christ has commanded to husbands will obviously help you zero in on what to look for in a potential guy if you have desires for marriage. And they'll be in seed form, of course. You're not going to look for like a mature fruit tree because he's not there yet. All right, so they'll be in seed form. Our growth is progressive, but, but these things should be there at some little level. But also, I think it'll be helpful because it'll help you zero in on what to affirm and encourage in your guy friends. You don't have to, like, flirt with them, but you can just encourage these qualities that we're going to see in this text because these are, are things that, that husbands and, and, and even really at, at other levels, every Christian needs to, to cultivate. Even as a friend in Christ, you can be a huge encouragement and help in just simple affirmation of these Christ-like qualities in your friends. And obviously, if you're a single man or a married man in here, and uh, we need to dial in because we are fighting some serious obstacles in our day uh, in regard to these issues. With our culture that's growing increasingly secularized and um, evangelicalism is, is also losing its moorings, with these things, many of you young men have never seen the role of a Christ-like husband modeled in your home. You just haven't seen it. You don't have a template to draw from. Or a dad who came alongside you and discipled you in these areas, and you're behind. And that's the reality. And so as a result, now you're just trying to piecemeal this thing together. Okay? You're trying to, to glean what you can from experiences and what other people are saying, maybe what you're hearing in the teaching, and you're trying to, you're trying to put it together. But don't fall into the trap of self-pity. Okay? Let me just give you an exhortation right out of the gate. Don't pity yourselves in this scenario. Instead, okay, your background is what God's going to uniquely use for the redemption of your own family. 
by God's grace one day. And instead, I think what you should do is you should resolve in Christ that the bad legacy stops with you. You got it? The bad legacy stops with you. Psalm 78 can now be true of you and your family, where you're passing on a heritage to the next generation that's coming after you. Whether that's physical kids that comes from a marriage, or whether that's spiritual kids that comes from discipleship, or both, as I think would be uh, ideal. So we want to have that be thinking generationally. Psalm 78, we want to resolve that the bad legacy is going to stop with you, And by God's grace, we want to see generations echoing your faithfulness, whether through your family or your disciples or both, like we said. As a a young man, a budding man, you have tremendous opportunity to grow in all that Christ would have you be. For His church, and and if He graces you with a wife and family, with that as well. There's so much ahead of you, so much life. So tonight, this is just one step in that, in that process. So dial in, get the categories down, and then find somebody who's striving to fulfill them, some guy who's working, working angles, and just get in behind him and learn from him. Pattern your life after his. Well, that's one obstacle, is the, that, that challenge. It's a reality. And then not only have many of you not received a model, but our flesh is pre-programmed with a wrong view of a husband in marriage and love and everything else. Okay? Even though we're saved, even though we're redeemed in Christ and we have His Spirit, our flesh is pre-programmed, it's still in the opposite way. So we gotta, we're going to be having to be shedding stuff as we grow. And that's, that's the idea of renewing our minds. Love is, is twisted by default in the way we think about it. It's twisted, and it's twisted by men in particular, often into something erotic and sensual, and then it's idolized in lust. And it's like just out of control lust for pleasure. Even Christian young men often pursue marriage with the excited desire for fulfillment. For all the ways you can envision this young lady is just going to be so beneficial for you. And that's not necessarily bad. But it's bad if you're not giving any thought about what God expects from you. Make sense? If you want to be married, we're going to get a clear look tonight at what God expects from the men, from husbands. In fact, it's, it's not just an expectation, but it's an obligation. It's what Paul is going to say in verse 28. We are obligated to do this. It's not optional. It's a high bar to love like Christ. And I think just at the outset, I think we were talking about this just right before. It's, it's, there, there's a wrong way to respond to this, even up front, which we all every man in this room feels. You want to run. You want to run. I'm never going to get married. That's, if you have desires for marriage, that's a wrong response. Okay? That's a cowardly, unmasculine response okay, to the high bar. Because you have Christ. He wants to empower you to fulfill these things. And he's, he's going to graciously help you and equip you in the church to do this. So don't run away from it. Now, if you want to be single for the sake of the kingdom, you have singleness as your aim, Yes and amen, we want to equip you to that end. You're not half a person because you're not going to be married. 1 Corinthians 7. But if you have desires for marriage, the wrong, the wrong way to respond is to shirk away. Instead, we, we, we dive in, we pursue the bar by faith in Christ and independence on Him. We pursue it humbly, shattered by our inadequacies, and that's right where we need to be. Okay. So tonight, 
We're going to look at two specific ways a husband's love is to mimic Christ's love. Two specific ways a husband's love is to mimic Christ's love. And that's really what Paul's going to get at in this passage. We have a pattern. It's the Lord, just like the wives had a pattern in, in their instructions. We have a pattern too. It's the Lord, and, we, and we're called to mimic Him. We're going to see that tonight. So the first way, the first specific way, is through sacrificial love. So love is the command here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. You're going to see that again in verse 28. Husbands should love their wives. You're going to see it again in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife. So love is the command. And then he's going to just like layer it with some, with some nuances here. So the first sort of nuance or the first dimension of this love is it's sacrificial. Sacrificial love. And if, if we want to put some shoe leather on this, and it's what we're going to unpack, I would just describe this love in a statement. <clears throat> I think you're going to see this in, in the chapter. It's a love that initiates in self-denial for the purity of his wife. A love that initiates. It's proactive. It initiates in self-denial for the purity of his wife. And that is flowing out of the model that we have in Christ. Look, look with me now with that in your, in your minds. See your writing. I'll wait for a second. You can't blame me if I go over, if I'm waiting, if I'm giving you five seconds every time you're writing. I'm keeping track of this, okay? <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And really, verse 28, this is in the same way husbands should love their wives. So it's, it's, it's to be sacrificial. It's, it's a love that initiates in self-denial for the purity of his wife. Now, right off the bat, uh, we see that Paul immediately defines what he has in mind with the concept of love. When he says to love your wives, as Christ loved the church, he immediately defines it. He says, Christ loved, and what else did he do? What's the text say? He yelled out. He gave. He gave, gave, gave. He gave himself. You're going to see that come up again and again in Scripture. He loved and gave. He loved and gave. That's because love is fundamentally sacrificial. So, we're going to get to that in a second. But there's an interesting observation that we need to make about the order of the Greek text here. So, hang with me. It gives us a hint at something that Paul's emphasizing. The phrase literally reads, and you'll hear it, Christ loved the church and himself he gave. Christ loved the church, and himself he gave. The word himself is fronted to catch our eye in the way that the, the language is unfolding. And I think that Paul would have us draw from this that Christ's love took the first step. It, it was voluntary. He voluntarily gave himself. Or to say it another way, it would be that it, it's a love that initiates. 
So it's a love that initiates. Okay, verse 25, himself he gave. In other words, Christ didn't wait around for his bride to beautify herself before he loved her. He wasn't waiting on that. Remember back in chapter 2? What was our condition when God made us alive, according to chapter 2? Dead. We were dead in sin. We were marching to the beat of Satan's drum. Uh, We were totally held captive by our fleshy desires and sin. We didn't even know we were dead. And yet, God condescended to us. We were dead in sin, and God initiated in love while we were dead in our transgressions, it says in chapter 2, verse 4. In other words, there was nothing lovely about the church when Christ came for her, uh, when, he, when he loved her, when God rescued us from the mire. And in fact, that's really purposeful in the way God did that because it displays the uniqueness of his love, that it's like uncontingent on anything but himself in the outflow, his great love, his desire to display it. It's <laughs> sweet truth for believers. So what does this mean for husbands then? Well, a husband must also initiate freely in imitation of Christ. We don't wait around for our wives to become worthy of our love. It's not contingent on that. We don't make our love contingent on their loveliness. Our love for our wives and and others in this world is best displayed not when they are at their best, but when they are at their worst. So, according to that, Christ-like love doesn't wait around. It's proactive. So, most of you are not married. So how does this, how, pro, how do we think about this, okay? Proactive love. Well, how proactive are you in church to demonstrate love? Do you wait around for someone to tell you to serve? Or are you so humbled by Christ's love toward you that you're busting down the church door to serve? Do you wait on people to come up to you and talk to you so that you feel welcome? Or do you come into Boundless and into Timberlake services looking for people that you can meet, looking for people to befriend, looking for those that you can make feel at home by your warmth? Because Christ did that for you. He initiated love toward you. When you talk to people, are you so self-absorbed in conversation around you? Are you so self-absorbed in conversation that you have no idea what people actually need? The people that are, are close to you? Do, you have, do others have to spell out their needs to you? Or are you growing in your ability to perceive those needs? To show empathy? To seek solutions for their benefit? Or does it have to be spelled out? Because you're, you're self-absorbed. And, and ladies, just let me talk to you for a second. If the guy you like or the guy you're dating or the guy you're engaged to is not showing any kind of initiating love for the body, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Because he won't show it long term toward you. But, look for the beginnings of it. All right? Look for the beginnings of this initiating love. Look for young guys that have their pride shattered by the Lord. Look for those guys. 
Look for those guys who know their weaknesses and can articulate them. Look for those guys who make no excuses for their sin, but instead they flee to Christ. Who are tenderized by His mercy. Who know, get it, that Christ has initiated love toward Him. And it's undeserved. Look for those guys who are working hard to start showing this initiating love to other people, even though they're going to be awkward in it, it's going to be a little immature, they're going to be stumbling around, you know, it's okay. And ladies, when you see this in your guy friends, when you see them making, like kind of initiating these little ways, affirm that. Affirm that. This is good for the church. This is the humble soil in which this kind of love is going to flourish and, and faithful marriages are going to be born out of. And then, guys, I just want to encourage you for a minute. I see this happening. Little ways, just all across. You know, it's just some in and out in different ministries. I hear of it happening, you know, in different, different areas of the ministry. And it blesses my soul. There was one particular, there was one particular uh, pastor on staff who, who had tears in his eyes coming to me about some of the guys when they initiated um, a service project. And I, I didn't even know about it. And they just did it and got it done. And it was like, our deacons are kind of looking around like, whoa, like they, they just got this thing done. I mean, it, was, it just blessed our church. And this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. The Spirit's stirring you men in these areas, and we're, we're, we're having conversations about it. I see you taking initiative and responsibility, and it's awesome. So keep at it. You're becoming a blessing to the church, and Lord willing, you're going to be a blessing to a young lady one day. All right? So hang in there. Keep pursuing it. And if you're not, let's do it. All right? Let's, let's get after it. So, Christ's love initiates, and we're to mimic that as husbands, but notice that it initiates in a particular way, okay? It initiates in a particular way. It initiates in self-denial. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. Like, that's just, it's so common that it, we don't, it doesn't ring, it doesn't hit us. Like, he died for you. Like, he, he gave his life. He bore the wrath of God for you. It wasn't easy. That's how his love manifests. It manifests in sacrifice, in self-denial. And that's the essence of what Paul's getting at when he says that Christ loved by giving himself. And, and this is the pattern given for husbands to follow. This means that Christ calls husbands to be spent, spent, to pour themselves out, to spare no effort in bringing spiritual benefit to their wives. He calls us here to be willing to do good to our wives at great cost to ourselves. Well, to what extent, Clay? I mean, my goodness, just a, just a man. Well, what extent did he, does Paul tell us? Death. Unto death. You got to love like that, men. And to love like this means we've got to do battle in some fundamental areas, doesn't it? Yeah, you say yes, it does. It means that. We have to battle in some really key areas. This, it's gotta be, this has to be a conviction for you. It's not going to come easy. You're going to want to give up. So it's got to be convictional. 
and it has to be convictional in particular, that God has designed us as men to learn to lay down our lives in a thousand ways for the benefit of those that we lead. Which means then that we cannot idolize ease and comfort. We can't. We live in a culture that does, and our flesh wants to really bad. And there's a bunch of men walking around in this world who are actually boys at heart, and they idolize these things. And it cannot characterize us. Ease and comfort are wonderful gifts from God, but these become hindrances to effective leadership when we idolize them. We have to be willing to lose those comforts that we love, that we think we need, We have to be willing to lose those to expend effort and energy to to deprive ourselves if necessary in order to better benefit those around us. We've got to be willing to do that. And I know this is not necessarily where you guys are at, but log this story away. I'll just give you an illustration to drive this point home. Just heads up, a lot of little marriage conflicts that turn into big marriage conflicts often happen right around the time the husband gets home from work. Okay? Just heads up. So if it's getting to World War III, 10 years from now, or five years from now, or one year from now, and it's at that moment, you man, oh, Pastor Clay said, this is going to happen. All right? So here's how it goes. Husband's been slugging it out in the office, right? I mean, just working his heart out, he thinks. He's been working all week. We'll say it's Friday, and he's wiped out. He's been problem-solving all day long, just one thing after another. He's overjoyed just to get out of there. It's Friday. Like, all right. He's driving home. He starts thinking, man, I am excited to be gone out of there. I'm going to get home, veg out for a few minutes, go downstairs, try to, try to slip, slip past the kids, and just like, Get to my chair, watch some Sports Center, catch up. I take a little snooze, you know, spend a few minutes in the man cave, shed some responsibility, not have to make any decisions, put my mind in neutral. And I'm going to reemerge and have a nice meal with my family. That's what he's thinking. He's driving home. Meanwhile, his wife has been battling in the trenches all day herself with the kids. About 15 minutes before the husband comes home, the three-year-old poops all over the floor upstairs. Mom starts scrambling. Oh, i got to clean this up before it gets everywhere. And she realizes, I forgot to set the timer for the pot pie in the oven. And in between smells of you-know-what on the floor upstairs, she smells the burning pot pie in the oven. And Almost at tears, she restrains it. She consoles herself by thinking, in just a few minutes, my husband is coming home. And I'm finally going to get that extra set of hands I so desperately need in this moment. These kids, what did I deserve? What did I deserve this? So you see where this is going. Yeah, tell me about it. So two very different sets of expectations and perceived needs. And a collision is about to happen. Well, so what's this husband supposed to do? He's supposed to die. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to sacrifice himself 
for the sake of his wife. You see, he can't start to capitulate on his ride home in self-pity. Well, I've been working so hard. I deserve a little, whatever it is. Christ calls us to spare no expense, men. To be willing to lay down our needs and desires for the good of our wives. And this is not easy, but it's true. He calls us to lay it down for the flourishing of our family. Instead of feeding the flesh on the way home, this husband needs to remind himself of what Christ has called him to. He is a servant to his wife and kids. And he has no energy? That's okay. He needs to throw himself completely on Christ's mercy to help him. He needs to beg Christ to give him what he needs to serve his family. As long as the needs are there. Now we're starting to scratch the surface just a little bit of what he means in Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. It will cost us men like it cost Christ. And we have to be willing to give up our own agendas, our own love of comfort, our own self-absorptions for his sake in the home. We have to. But what about me? Says the Self-absorbed husband. (laughs) What about my needs, right? That's what our hearts do. Don't I need things too? Well, maybe. But you probably need a lot less than you realize. But even so, the Lord will take care of you. He will. It's His promise. He will give you great joy in being fruitful for His glory. Do you really want to go watch SportsCenter? when you could effect eternal glory in that moment by dying for the needs of your wife? There's much joy in this, man. He's going to provide what you need, and He's going to provide it when you need it most. He's not harsh. He's not a harsh taskmaster over you. He will use the burdens of leadership to draw you to Himself in ways that you won't know Him apart from suffering. He's going to teach you to commune with Him moment by moment. It's going to be like, it's like a trap door of joy and energy and peace. You had no idea it was there. And your circumstances don't change. And He meets you in the moment to show you just what He meant when he said that he would give you rest. Come to me, you who are weary. That's every husband out there that's striving to follow Christ. We're weary, but he is not. And he's not wearied by you. You just set your sights on being obedient to him. Mimicking him and what he's called you to do. And he will take care of you. So, Young men, how sacrificial are you in the body of Christ right now? How willing are you to spend and be spent for the needs of others, no matter where you're at spiritually, spiritual maturity-wise? Where are you at there? What, What comforts are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to be pressed and stretched to meet the needs of others, or are you more risk averse when it comes to people? 
Are you willing to stick your neck out there for the good of another brother or sister in Christ? Will you risk being misunderstood to lovingly confront someone? Or are you content to just lay back and preserve yourself? Are you willing to take responsibility for other people? Or are you afraid that that might impinge too much on your cherished free time? And we've got to learn to die to the things that hinder us from the self-denying love that Christ calls us to and experience the eternal joy that awaits us on the other side of death. So this love is what we're called to imitate. And it's a love that initiates and self-sacrifices, we've seen. But what I want you to notice in the text is how Paul doesn't stop here in the illustration. He continues for two more verses, telling us why Christ loved us the way he did, and giving us the goal of his redemptive love, and it's unto our purity, or unto purification for the church. It's unto that end, unto the goal of purity. Look in verse 26. So he did this, that, so there's the, in order that, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So man, he's really intent on telling us that what Christ's love affected in this passage, this passage about husbands, uh, or what the goal was. So why did Christ sacrifice for us? It was so that he could purify us and present himself a glorious bride. And this purifying goal is actually part of the model for husbands. And now you're saying, all right, Clay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying that husbands are dying in atonement for their wives' sins? No. That would be a denial of the cross, and you would fire me, I hope. Notice that the sacrifice is, is unto purity. In other words, husbands lay down their wives for the well-being or for the growth of their wives. Christ calls me to sacrifice for Mary to provide the ideal conditions for her purity in Christ. That's why, why he goes into that. That's why he spends two verses telling us that that's why Christ died, right? Is so that I would learn that my sacrifice is unto an end, is unto her purity. So just remember, guys, just log this away. None of us can cause the growth of anyone else. So you can't do that. We plant and we water, says Paul, but God gives the increase. It's not that we're not used by God as an instrument, but you don't, you don't cause the growth. So it's very important to remember in marriage. A husband can't ultimately, ultimately change his wife, and a wife can't ultimately change her husband. But Christ can and does. God has designed it in such a way, though, that as a husband lays himself down in love, it promotes the holiness of his wife. He sacrifices in such a way that his home becomes a haven for her purity. He labors hard to keep out satanic influences and satanic lies. Bringing up any original stories in the Bible? He labors hard to keep those out. He is willing to stay up late, to listen to his wife, to draw her out, 
to ask good questions and help her think through issues. He's willing to get up early to study so he can study out the truth, so he has something to give to his wife, so he can have clarity for her and come alongside her in the areas she's struggling. He's willing to bear up with her in her sin. He's patient, he's gracious, he's tender. He's willing to alleviate her burden so she can spend undistracted time with the Lord or other older women in discipleship. He's even willing to risk becoming unpopular with his own wife if he needs to help her see that she's entangled in a lie so she can turn from it and turn back to Christ. So he sacrifices in love, but that sacrifice is aimed at a goal And the goal is the purity, the flourishing, and the joy of his wife in Christ. That is the goal. So single guys, is purity or holiness your goal in life now? Is it your goal? Because guess what? You ain't lead nobody anywhere unless it's first characterizing you. Are you hustling to grow in Christ? Or is your hunger and thirst for righteousness Uh, just kind of lackluster? Or is your hunger and thirst for righteousness infecting those around you? Are others lining up to follow you in your pursuit of Christ, in your pursuit of holiness, or are you just sort of coasting through life without any real zeal or direction? Do you have clear biblical goals like holiness and purity out ahead of you, motivating you? Are you burdened then for the development of other people, other Christians in this church? For others' growth in Christ, are you willing to sacrifice for it, like we're seeing here? Those are just questions to be thinking about here. And just let me wrap this point up by making one massive connection for you guys. Do you realize, men, that if you are consuming porn, you are cultivating the exact opposite of what this passage calls you to? It's like the exact opposite of it. You are cultivating a proud heart that uses women for your self-absorbed gratification. That's what you're doing. You're addicted, not to porn, but to yourself. You're addicted to your own glory and to the abuse of women, and you must repent. Don't hide it. Continuing deception is the absolute worst thing you could do. Expose it and come clean, and we will come alongside you in mercy to help you, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. But we will not coddle you. I'm not going to coddle my my four-year-old if he's playing with a cobra. You have to see sexual sin and lust for what it is. It's death to your soul, according to the Proverbs death. With every click, you're actively promoting Satan's kingdom. You're saying, yeah, I'm unwilling to deny myself in any sense, in the most fundamental way, for the sake of purity. It's unwilling. I'm going to do it. But on the flip side, every time you deny your flesh, the power of the Spirit, every time you do that, every little time, you got that like desire to 
lust and to indulge, and you are the power of the Spirit in the church through discipleship, deny that through the, new, the renewing of your mind. Every single time you choose purity, you are actively cultivating the heart of a Christ-like husband. Like, every little decision matters. It's not like, I think we think about, like, purity as in, like, oh, I just, I can't do it. You know, just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get through, you know, and it's just like not doing anything. But every time you, you crush it, every time you, you battle it, you are cultivating spiritual muscle. The, you're exercising the muscle of faith, and you're growing in strength, and you're cultivating the heart of a, of a husband like Christ. And then you're gaining the ability to see clearly to help other people and perhaps even lead a wife into purity. But you cannot lead a wife to purity if you yourself are not pure. It's just not going to happen. So ladies, if you're dating a guy who isn't willing to deal decisively with this problem, or he's constantly tempting you toward various lusts and sexual sin, you need to break up with him and not get back together with him until he has shown evidence of genuine repentance and it's been affirmed by an older man in the church in his life. Because he's a threat. He's a threat to you. And if he doesn't see he's a threat, it shows he's blind. He loves himself and he's using you like he's using those other women on the internet. No matter what he says to you. God desires you to wait for a man who is humble, honest, and willing to lay his life down to promote your purity. Not to drag you down into that mire with him. That is the opposite of a Christ-like man. And I'm so encouraged, guys, because I see a number of you young men scrapping in this area. Like, you're doing battle. And I'm not talking about the liberty version of struggling with for purity, which means I look at it all the time, and I confess it to people, and I keep looking at it. That's not struggling. That's indulging, and then using somebody like a priest to talk, to talk about it. Genuine struggle is meaning doing battle, like renewing your mind, texting each other, and men, and other older men who are not struggling with this like you are. That's, different, that's a whole different ballgame than texting your buddy who just looked at it too. All right, you want to get serious, you find somebody who's pure and step into the light with those men. All right? Renew your mind in the truth. You're openly confessing and seeking to repent, and you don't care about the cost. And praise God by His grace. A number of you men are doing that. You're becoming men who, are, who will be able, by God's grace, to lead other people in purity. And Lord willing, a wife. So, Praise God for that. And excel still more. And bring, let's bring guys up. Let's, let's may, may boundless be characterized by pure men. It's just so different than what we're going to see. What you even see at the, at the university. So, we don't want to lower that bar. Christ would not have us lower the bar. Paul would definitely not want us to lower that bar. So, there we have the first way that, that, Paul, that uh, Paul says a husband's love is to, is to mimic Christ. His love should be sacrificial. But the text goes on, and Paul adds a second way that our love is to mimic Christ, and we'll call this one nourishing love. Nourishing love. So you have sacrificial love, and now you have nourishing love. 
And we could summarize that by saying it's a love that's driven to tenderly care for the needs of his wife. A love that is driven to tenderly care for the needs of his wife. Now, before we um, unpack that definition from our text, let me just quick work through the flow of thought here in the passage, then we'll come back and put it all together. Verse 28, Paul adds another way to we're to love our wives. He, he says, we're to love them as we love ourselves. Just look with me in verse 28. In the same way, then, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but, here's the words, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, or nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in verse 28, beginning of this passage, Paul adds another way, kind of another dimension to this love, and he says we're to love like we love ourselves. Love them like we love, our, like we love us. And normally, normally, I know there's exceptions to this, but normally people don't harm themselves. Uh, instead, we take care of ourselves. We eat, we sleep, we shower. Some of us more than others. We get help when we're hurt or we're sick. We try to alleviate pain when we're in it. We don't hate our flesh, is what Paul says here. But instead, we nourish it and we cherish it. Verse 29. Well then, we're like, yeah, tracking. So then he takes the illustration one step further. And it actually a much more profound step further. Beyond just how we love ourselves as men, not only do we do this with our own bodies, but Christ himself, here's the parallel, Christ himself does this with his body, the church. Christ nourishes and cherishes us, Paul says, because we are members of his very body. Verse 30. We are in a profound union with Christ. Then, that's not enough, Paul does something extraordinary in this passage. And it's a little bit puzzling until you kind of see what's happening. Paul, by his authority as an apostle, sort of draws back the eternal curtains, so to speak, and he reveals a mystery to us about marriage itself. Now, a mystery in the Bible is something that was previously unrevealed to prior generations. Like, they didn't know about it. But now it's been made known through the apostles and the prophets. Paul's already talked about this back in chapter 3. And so when we hear mystery, we shouldn't think, you know, Tom Clancy. We should think uh, new revelation, new insight. And, And here's the new insight. The one flesh union of marriage was created after the pattern of Christ in the church. The one flesh union of marriage, like what we talk about, about marriage, was created after the pattern of something else that predated it. And it was Christ's relationship with the church. In other words, 
when God instituted marriage, He designed it to reflect the more fundamental and eternal union of Christ and His people. Where am I getting that from? Well, it's from this quote of Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians 5.31. So, look here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. But it's, it's situated in this really interesting way in the passage, in the flow of thought. So, remember the flow of his argument here. He's just been talking about the relationship of Christ and the church. Christ is one with his body, he says, because we're members of him. Therefore, the text says, or for this reason, i.e. because we're members of Christ, that's the flow of the argument, for this reason, because we're members of Christ, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And you're like, what? How does that work? Uh, uh, it's jarring in the flow of thought. What do you mean, Paul? Uh, that doesn't seem to make sense. So, <laughs> Paul like anticipates that, and he goes on to explain what he means, to tell the significance of why he just quoted that text the way he did in this context. And in verse 32, Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what mystery? The mystery, previously unrevealed, is that marriage was designed after a template. It was intended to point to something greater, to Christ's relationship to the church. And it start, we kind of have this aha moment when we think about how Paul starts the letter in Ephesians 1. Remember how he starts? Paul's so thankful to God. Why? Because God chose us, i.e. the church, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of of the world. Huh. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world for what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. The exact phrase in this text. So when did He choose a people for Himself to be unified with Christ, to have this one flesh union with Christ? Paul says before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 2, before Genesis 1. Our one flesh union with Christ in God's purpose, as hard as it is to get our mind around, it predates creation. It predates human marriage. And Paul, by quoting this marriage text and saying it most fundamentally refers to Christ in the church, he's telling us that the marriage relationship was ultimately designed to reveal something eternal, that God is dwelling with his people, that Christ is one with his bride, the church. This was God's purpose from the beginning, and the glorious destiny, catch this, of married couples in the new covenant. These married folks now get the tremendous privilege of living in these times of the revealed mysteries. We are brought in now to the truest meaning of marriage. And we get to act it out as husbands and wives on this side of the cross, this side of the revelation, as we learn to love. And you can begin to see these themes that we've been talking about for weeks 
that God's glory is revealed not just in the church, but also all the way down into the home in these ways. It's profound. So with all this background, we'll finish quick here. With all this background, let's briefly unpack how husbands are to mimic Christ's nourishing love. All right? Bring it back, tie it together. So initially, just notice in verse 28 that Paul says husbands are obligated to love their wives. Do you see that in this Christ-like way? Uh, in the same way, husbands sh- in the ESV just should love their wives, but the text, I mean, the verb is like obligated. Uh, in the same way, husbands are obligated to love their wives. There's an obligation. Now, this doesn't sound very romantic. Sorry. But it's helpful. And it's helpful to let it sink in. Why? Well, husbands get the privilege to love, yes, but it's also an obligation. It's what God expects and requires from husbands. That's why in my summary statement, I say it's a love that's driven to these things. It's driven to tenderly care for the needs of his wife. It's driven. Why? Because obligations drive you. Obligations become convictions, especially when they come from the risen Lord and they're laid upon you. It, uh, knowing it's an obligation drives us to be faithful. We want to be faithful to, with our wives whom the Lord has entrusted to us. So single guys, let this obligation sober you. God will hold you accountable for how you steward his daughter when he gives her to you in marriage. And that, if that sinks in, that's going to drive you then to tenderly care for her in a way that pleases Christ. Whether or not, it doesn't matter what you want. Right or what your desires do, whether you feel like it today or don't, it's going to drive you, as a conviction should, to tenderly care for your wife. And notice, second, that we're called to mimic how Christ nourishes and cherishes us. So it's a love that tenderly cares for needs, I would say. I think that's the idea. To nourish someone just means you provide for them. It's kind of synonymous with like feeding them. Um... And when it's paired with his second word, cherish, Paul adds the idea of a tenderness, warmth, love, compassion, value, this cherishing word. So the main idea here for the husband is to tenderly care for the needs, both physical and spiritual, of his wife. And that's how Christ nourishes and cherishes us. Now, of all this stuff that we've talked about, I think this was probably the thing that hit me the most this week. It's almost awkward to think about Christ nourishing and cherishing me. Just like, I'm a dirtbag. And he is described here as, as nourishing and cherishing me. And Paul says that very clearly here. And it's super important that we grow in our understanding and experience of just how incredible his tender care is for us. Because if I don't know how he treats me, I'm ignorant of that, or I'm ignoring that. The implication is, I have no idea how to treat my wife. Make sense? If I, if I don't know how Christ is tender with me, then I'm not going to have something to draw from as I'm trying to be tender with my wife. So let me say it backwards. How I treat my wife is like a little revelation of how I envision how Christ treats me. If I'm harsh with her, or I'm impatient with her, or critical of her, or de- demanding of her, or irritable with her, I'm either forgetting how Christ treats me, or I'm revealing I don't really understand. I don't have a good grasp of how he treats me. Or maybe a little bit of both. Okay? 
which happens to my shame, like these things happen, because we're all in process. But when Christ, the perfect one, when Christ tenderly cares for me, he never treats me sinfully in any way, in spite of what I deserve. This changes how I treat other people. He humbles me. He tenderizes me. He lowers my view of myself and helps me to love, uh, to love others, to enter into the lives of others. When Christ nourishes us by His Word and provides all we need in both good and bad circumstances, when we experience this, man, it, it just transforms the way that we interact with people. And in particular in marriage. There's tenderness and care because we realize that what we're, we're, that we're just we're displaying, we're bending out what we've received. And that's so important. And what is awesome and incredible about this is that, going back to where we started, like you guys didn't have a good example, guess what you have? The example. Right? And you're experiencing it. Even if you didn't have a good dad example, you have Christ's example, and, and you're growing in your experience of, of, of it in your own life. He's the true template, and he's committed to teaching you how to reflect him. So you can break the chain of bad examples, even if you didn't have a dad. Because Christ can step in and bring the redemption. How encouraging is that? So what does this look like? Just internally, husbands should be motivated with this tenderness of Christ. And it should reveal itself in our words and our actions. We seek physical provision? Yeah, of course. Like, that's like bottom shelf. Yeah, we physically provide. We're not going to leave her out to dry out there. But it goes way beyond that. A Christ-like husband values his wife. He expresses this value with his affirmations and encouragement. But when he uses the language of Proverbs 31, the husband rises up and calls her blessed. He shows that he cherishes her by how he serves her, how he prefers her, how he enjoys her companionship. He, come along, he comes alongside her when she's weak to strengthen her. He prays for her and with her. He leads her to the truth and to a healthy church. He encourages healthy friendships and discipleship relationships with her. And it's all flowing from this tender affection that he has for her that's flowing from this experience of having that with Christ. So young men, are you humbled by his love for you? Are you rejoicing in Christ's love for you? In the way that he nurtures and cherishes you? Are you receiving this infinitely sweet word from him? Is it tangibly changing you and how you interact with other people? Are you becoming a better affirmer of biblical virtue in other people? Are you becoming more tender and, a, and an encourager of others in the body? Do you seek to nurture the faith of those around you? How patient are you with the weaknesses of other people? Are you harsh, critical, or is your spirit generous? And ladies, just are you looking for these things? Because under, is, this, is this at the top? You know, some dude that's humble, crushed by his own sin, and just in love with Christ because of how gracious he has been to him. Things like this are the signs that a young man will grow into being a nurturer and cherisher of you. If he, if he is just, he understands what Christ has done for him, and he's in little ways beginning to bend that out for other people around him. So, we're going to end here. There you have it. 
Paul's instructions to husbands. So just be like Christ in how you love your wives or your future wives or people around you. Sacrifice for them. Nourish and cherish them. We're bending out Christ's own love for us as His church and, and how we love other people. And remember, this is, this is not just for husbands. Remember Ephesians 5, 5 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. That's, that's to everybody. And it's starting to become really clear at this point why Paul spent so much of his time in the letter laying out those first three chapters. You remember that? A lot of you are new, so you probably don't. You're like, okay, you've been in this book for like two years. But he, he laid it out for three chapters pounding in us the reality that we were dead in our sins, but God really does love us more than we could ever imagine. And it's so simple when we step back. We experience God's love, and then we bend that out to others progressively as we're learning to imitate Him in this world. Let's pray. Father, may we press in. Our flesh wants to run. We want to hide. But empower us with Your Spirit to make baby steps of progress in these areas for your great glory, for the good of all future wives, and just for the great blessing and benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.